Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled One's Face on the Path. The talk was given by Jocelyn Del Rio on September 9th, 2023, via Zoom. Jocelyn is an artist, therapist, mother, gardener, and builder whose main interest in life is growth, development, evolution, observing in awe, and participating in the cyclical nature of life. In this talk, she discusses the impact of the expressions of certain faces in spiritual paintings or sculpture and of genuine spiritual teachers in photographs or in person, which can reflect our own basic goodness or organic innocence to us when we are in an open state. During the live presentation, Jocelyn showed a picture taken by her son of a Buddhist stone carving that they came upon when traveling, which made an impression that has informed her life. The communication made by the gaze of certain spiritual masters is referenced in the talk, including Swami Prajnanpad, Arnaud Desjardins, Neem Karoli Baba, Papa Ramdas, Ananda Maima, Ramana Maharshi, her own teacher, Lee Lasowick, who she describes meeting, and Lee's master, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar. She also speaks about other teachers, including Richard Baker Roshi, Lalita, and Ramdas, Richard Alpert. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Jocelyn Del Rio. Thank you, everybody who's here. I came across a quote recently of Pat Conroy. Voyagers can remove masks and those intricate disguises that we wear at home in the dangerous equilibrium of our common lives. Okay, we can remove our masks as we travel and maybe something new will come up. This story happened in, gee, 2006, when I took a backpacking trip to Southeast Asia, three weeks with my son and three weeks by myself in India, something which I had never done. So it was drop the the mask and the disguise that I was wearing, and I was able to be just something absolutely, totally different. And I got to Thailand at three o'clock in the morning in a red zone to meet my son with his backpack. And we signed up for a bus. We had bus tickets to Cambodia. The first bus that we got there at the first border, suddenly the bus was gone and they said, no, now you're traveling on a pickup. So I got on the roof of the pickup because I didn't want to be inside it. And then next stop, it was monsoon season. and. The roads were closed because they were flooded. And so we were moved into little wooden canoes where we had to row. And after the rowing was going on for a while, I ended up walking on foot with my backpack like a refugee. So all the things I knew about myself were gone, disappeared, and of no use to anybody at that point. And the next day we went through the archaeological site. And towards the end of the day, it was evening. It was still really light. 
we'd gone to the women's section of the archaeological site. And I went into the jungly area just beyond that. And all of a sudden, I was confronted by these huge heads in stone with an expression on the face that actually threw me to the ground. Oh, my God. I was laughing. I was crying. I was trembling. It just rocked my world. I was traveling without a camera. My son took this for me and gave me the photograph a year later. He realized what it meant to me. And it sits on the wall opposite my bed. And I see it every morning and every night. That expression on that face went right through me and made me decide that that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. This was something that I knew was within me because I was vibrating to it and was like a a possibility. And so I started studying faces. I started studying the faces that I see. It just opened me up so, so gently and I was so empty and weightless and yet full of light and air and enthusiasm and possibility. That sensation of being connected to everything but bound to nothing. This is for real. We learn through our bodies. I've known that for years, but the face suddenly became very important on learning through our bodies. We remember through our bodies. And so I started studying in my own quiet way through faces. And Cynthia Borrego, author of The Holy Trinity and the Law of Three, writes of this type of experience. Such glimpses are occasionally given. In fact, they come flooding in with force, a force that overcomes all resistance. Bidden or unbidden, the mystery suddenly appears, and one simply stares into its face and sees. Whether we consider ourselves mystics or not, there is a light of recognition that shines in each of us, deeper than our intellect and our conditioning, for it draws from the same deep aquifer. Completely the sensation. And so what does it take to be on the receiving end of this or maybe on the giving out? What does it take to be on the receiving end? As Pat Conroy said, you have to be in a situation where your normal standards and your normal habits and your normal structure is gone for that communication to come in. A state where you don't have expectations and we don't have our screens and our shields all set up and not buttressed or defended, but we have to be curious and courageous to be on the receiving end of an impression like this. I also associate it with a shock, with grief, with intense need, with accidents and outrageous occurrences, with welcoming the unwelcome, with intense joy. All of these things create the cracks where the light gets in. I know when my son died, which was totally unexpected, we were doing all the administrative things. And there was one moment on the highway when we were heading back to the city where I suddenly realized this is not my choice, but this is given to me to do something with. I have to do something with this. It was beyond, beyond my normal experience. And there was a message totally to me that, okay, this is where your work starts. So it's those different situations which, to me, make me open to be able to receive that other reality. 
it's like an opportunity. Okay, my children said, welcome the unwelcome. It may be something you didn't want, but it is an opportunity to open up. And it was like meeting Lee. Meeting Lee, I met him in a fancy home for a fancy dinner. He was on the other side of the room. It was just that look on his face of, here are the answers to the questions that you never dared to ask or didn't even know you had. No. And it was true. That vision that I had about the question, and I'd be thinking, I wish I could ask this question. He'd look at me and he'd smile and he'd start to answer the question. And so that thing about the question was that connection that we had on a whole different level. And I knew it the minute I saw him. And the experience of seeing our no. There's sometimes when those visions or that understanding or that sense of basic goodness or whatever it is come in with that power of whammo. And there's sometimes when you ask for it, going to your talk, I was primed and looking for it, but I never knew exactly when it was going to or how it was going to happen. Slowly but surely, I've been realizing that it always has to do, in my case, through the face, through that face, through my face. There's always that connection, no? And I'm including in my face the ears. There's always that sensory thing. There's another example of somebody going through the face. I was listening to a talk the other day of Ram Dass, and he'd been through all kinds of experiences, years of psychedelic stuff and lots of practice, lots of meditation. And he was reluctant to go see another teacher. Somebody said, oh, you have got to meet this teacher. And he went to meet Neem Karoli Baba. And Karoli Baba took one look at him and the connection was made. And that was it. You know, how does this happen? Somehow for me, this one was not a person like me or no or Karoli Baba. This was something totally anonymous, totally unexpected, but the presence is there. The presence is in architecture, the presence is in murtis, the presence is in photographs, the presence is in many, many, many different things. There's a social anthropologist here in Mexico who was studying what really universal art is, and he would go to these small villages People sometimes didn't even speak Spanish all through Latin America, showing pictures of famous paintings and seeing their reactions to these images. And he was preparing a, another trip and he was going through his portfolio of pictures and found that his Mona Lisa was missing. Okay, and he said, I must have lost her somewhere. And then he remembered the last village he'd been in and he went back. And guess what? Mona Lisa was on the altar. She had spoken to them. Mm -hmm. So the magic, mystery, and miracle can come in any time. No? And to me, I've connected it to the sensation of basic goodness really exists. Leo has talked about the organic innocence that underlies all of us. The good, the bad, and the ugly, it underlies all of us. For instance, just recently, 
going back to the eye contact, when my second grandchild was born, he's 18 now, I went up to Canada to receive him. He had a difficult birth and his mother had a difficult time. And I was attending to her mostly. And one day I was holding the baby. I'd seen him, I'd seen his dark eyes, and I knew the baby perfectly well. But I was holding him and finishing washing dishes or doing something. And he was fussing and fussing. And I finally sat down and put him on my legs. He was holding him. Yeah. And his eyes, like Liz, who said, I know the answers to your questions. His eyes were like, I need you to see me and I need to see you. Very, very clearly. I was four days old. And very, very clearly his eyes said, let's connect. And so I sat there and just looked at him. I could feel him move into that place of connection. From a real place of innocence. We're hardwired biologically for this, but we have to be aware of it have to be aware of it. What could I give him through my face? What he was offering me through his? We still have a connection. I think that connection was made in total innocence. In total innocence. And recently with the eyes, I had an experience. I have a pair of yamas. And we had an unexpected birth of a yama. And it wasn't going well. The yama wasn't achieving this. The forefeet and the face, the head was out. But you could see the little one was struggling to breathe and was losing it at times. And I went in there and grabbed hold, talked to the mom and talked to her and midwife, the baby out. And took her out and lay her on the ground. And the mom still wasn't paying much attention to her. She was like in a trance until she passed the placenta. But that little wet unfolding body suddenly realized that she had eyes. And you could see her going, ah, what used to be dark, I suddenly see all of this. It was amazing to see her face come alive. No? And again, that total innocence. I have two feelings about that. One is This is a miracle that goes on in herds everywhere, all all over the world, all the time, and we don't notice it. And that amazement that she saw will probably dissipate in her. But I can do something more with it. I can realize that it exists. I can go down on my knees and say, wow, this is really something that this little face perceived, and I can understand more, more than she probably does, what it can mean, what it can connect to. And it takes me back to a quote of Papa Ramdas, where he's looking at a rose, and he says, Blessed art thou, little beauty, for thy revealeth the face of my beloved. Back to the face. The face is there in in many things. It's in a rose. Roses have thorns or thorns have roses. I'm not too sure where it comes first. And so many things are revealed as the face of the divine, as the manifestation 
I see it with mine. And one of the things that happened to me when I saw this one was that sense of gratitude and that sense of how can I pass this gift on? I see it. I feel it. I experience it. How can I share it? Part of the receiving this is to offer it, become prasad, not to keep it. And so I've got basic goodness here and organic innocence. And what the heck do I do with human stupidity, human cruelty, <laughs> all of the other things that are going on at the same time that co-arising? That's a whole different question of dealing with that kind of thing. And so today I brought a poem of leads to Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. It's not the whole point. You who hold opinions, you who think so deeply, ponder this. There are dark clouds in the sky. Yes, great storms are upon us now. Some run for cover under such circumstances, afraid that the rain will wet them. But it is only rain that pours from such clouds. Raindrops are tears, both meant to purify. Simply stand and be cleansed. Spread your arms and feel the sweet shower. And listen, my friends, is the sun gone just because it is obscured by darkness? Is the sun no longer shining just because we in our blindness cannot see it? No, it, he, is always as ever the source of life, our lives and life itself. All, everything, anything, past, present, future. Yes, storms come and go, tempests blow and rage, and always a new day dawns. The clouds part and the sun is there, exactly where it was before the storm, bright and warm in its great compassion, benevolence and majesty. Its rays blazing out, searching for us, touching and healing. Face the howling winds and be soaked to the bone by the driving wave of liquid. For is not that his gift as well as the sun? So when I can be there, <laughs> the storm and the sun are from the same source. But I still want to abide in basic goodness and organic innocence as much as possible. And in terms of this being of the sun, I want to quote Prentice Hemphill, who's an Afro-American transgender activist and therapist who says, an expansive God put me here, and I belong here, connected to the source of light, making the choice moment to moment to be connected, not to be in the story. Okay, so they're both existing, both co-arising, but to be in the light and not in the story. Not easy. So that takes me to studying stories. Either I remain alive or sensitive, awake, with action, agency, and responsibility, or I internalize systems, laws, accidents, and the narrative of human power and resources. So this is the dilemma of the story told to your body versus what the body knows. We've all at some point get hooked up in the story. We remain entangled in the story because we're afraid to 
experience the unknown if we release it. That story gives us like a shield, a buffer, security, which is the kind of thing we were talking about that you have to drop to be able to connect to the light. Which brings me back to the faith, because we're born into a faith, into stories and histories. Some of those are told to us, some told us about us, and some that we tell ourselves. From day one, the evidence is there. We all have a face with lighter dark skin, slanted or round eyes. There's always a story behind that configuration. The shape and size of our nose, the voice, the gender definitions. There's always a story that comes with having a face and all the rest of it. And age and experience change the face, painting and printing new stories on it. So we appear, we are born with a living, evolving, ever-changing body and face. And this territory we overlay with a constructed surface map full of detailed information. We really decorate this thing beautifully. <laughs> it becomes a mask of memories and wishful thinking. So will my face, question for anybody, will my face manifest the original terrain the vehicle of a being, or will it manifest the decorations which disguise it while they pretend to represent it? I don't really know that we even know that we're wearing a mask all the time, most of the time. If that's what you're referring to, the terrain that exists before the mask, it's in there someplace, but we're just covered with layer and layer of defense, it seems to me, which shows up in the face. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the thing that I could consciously do to drop that. But actually, I do think that some awareness of that is necessary to relax that. Mm -hmm. But it's not just in the face, it's in the whole body. But I'm working with the face because this happened to me. <laughs> By the way, people who listen to the podcast won't be able to see what it is that you're yeah. referring to. Could you describe yeah. what okay. it is? This is a huge stone head of a Buddha with this marvelous expression of peace on it. And totally an anonymous artist. It wasn't an acclaimed anything. Centuries old, a different language, a different time totally out of context for my life, a different culture, a different country. And yet it spoke, it spoke intimately to me, like this is possible. The question goes on a little, will it manifest the systems and procedures with which I have buttressed attitudes, actions, and relationships? Or will it reflect the universal stream of energy as it appeared and flowed through, evolving and serving? Will it dance to the rhythm of creation and petrify into a mask, solidified and or terrifying? Or will I actually end up looking like my father? Mm -hmm. Well, to my mind, the face itself will have the same story of cultural history, bone structure, so on. It's the expression. It's what can come through it. The Yama's face was just the Yama's face, but her 
expression. My baby's expression of connect with me. This expression on this photograph, Lee's expression, our nose, the face, whatever. But the expression on it, will it dance? Will it dance to the rhythm of creation? No. Whatever color, size, shape it happens to be, age. What you're talking about, I don't have that sensation relative to face. I have it at times when it ever shows up in an inner sense of wonder. Mm -hmm. Something that's totally beyond my personality. And the only way I can describe it is to say that I've been touched, taken, and it doesn't last that long. And I'm not running around trying to cultivate it. It just shows up. I doubt that that shows up in my face, so to speak. But I know it shows up internally just because that experience is beyond me. Yet it occurs in my body. So the start of all of this for me is just when wonder takes me. It can be out in nature or it could be reading a poem. But I welcome that. And don't attempt to incorporate it, make it mine. Mm -hmm. You have a story mm -hmm. as opposed to an experience. The original temptation is incorporate it. I want to be it and give it. Slow down yeah. here. Just realize it. Just experience yeah. it. I associate it with the face because that's where I receive impressions. Very clearly, I see them, I hear them, I feel them. Eventually, it's the whole body that becomes involved. But the portal is the face. And the portal for me has been very much face-to-face. -face. For a baby, it seems like everything is about the mother's face mm -hmm. when they're very young. They bond to that. They're nurtured by that. They're one with that for some period of time. I'm thinking about the fact that you went through a huge initiation that wore you down prior to you being confronted with that face. And that the very fact that you went on that pilgrimage was your expression of your deep intention. So I think that whether or not someone is impressed with the face of another depends, first of all, on the intention. People are impressed by Brad Pitt and fashion models because that's their intention. And you were impressed by this piece of incredible serenity. And I'm sure lots of people who had no idea who this was would also be impressed. But then the second stage is that you had some kind of know-how based on practice that you had been oriented in. So you had some kind of a know-how which allowed you to take that intention and also to take it into yourself as something that fed you. I think with much of the world, because we're bombarded with impressions all the time, we don't necessarily have the intention. We don't necessarily have the know-how of what to do with it once the intention arrives. And the third thing is we don't have the discipline or the consistency or the willingness to work with what we've been given. 
when 9-11 happened, people in New York transcended their personal suffering and were Mm -hmm. all together in one body. But how long does that last? I could show a room full of uninitiated people a photograph of Anandamai Ma, and they might go, oh, lovely. And then it's over. Actually, I have a little section on intention here. The intention is to actually receive the gift. For working with these experiences, I use the words of Richard Baker, who said there are three levels of practice. An attentional layer, which means I was paying attention. I was looking at this thing. An intentional layer, and the layer of the stabilization of mind and body which I dub the integrational layer. Attention, intention, and then integrate it, use it. Mm-hmm. And Lalita says she hopes to have a name till the end of her life. And the intention is something to do with these impressions, these things that are coming in. But here's the Dalai Lama. Be aware of the trap of attachment to that intention. When I trained as a therapist, the risk of your intention, okay, it can become a obsessive compulsive disorder. You know? <laughs> I can see anything but that. And Arnaud de Jardin promotes not being desireless, but desire free. He says, don't be afraid of desire as fear constrains your freedom, but be free of desire. If what you desire happens, accept. If not, accept. It is what it is. And we can't do without Robert Svoboda, who says, relax, relax, relax. Can I relax into this process? Have the intention, have the attention, have the integration, but can I relax? Here's the poem by Lee about the gift. This gift has been beautifully received. And don't think I'm not profoundly moved and grateful as well. But I return this gift to you so that you may use it through me in whatever way you wish, if you wish. I seek to use your gift only in ways that serve you. But if your faithful son errs, correct him firmly and without hesitation. Set him on the proper path, which is not his path, but your path. So there's giving up the experience is my experience. It's not another story of my own, no? Getting it into the body, like in self-observation where I direct posture. If I sort my face out, then the posture sorts itself out. My teeth are clenched and something else is going on. I can't get through to the body. Except somatic. It doesn't start in the body. It starts in the face. Breathing starts in the face. Notice the breath. Follow the breath. This is where it starts. This is where it finishes. So it's my point of connection. Our faces are what's most developed neurologically to start with. To make these bonding connections. It's an important pathway for exchange of information. I connect with my breath and then able to accompany it on its journey and function throughout the body. Is my breath faster, slower, and even warmer, cool, pleasanter, and comfortable? All of these things 
is where I can start to connect to the body. And I notice, for instance, with my eyes, it's like when the baby was communicating very clearly. My eyes are looking at things with an expression that is a story in itself and has nothing to do with what's really going on underneath. And then I was playing around with all the things that happen when we speak of facing things. First of all, am I actually facing things, honestly? Or do I have my nose in the air, my chin in my chest? Am I looking over my shoulder? Am I actually aware of what I just did or what is happening? Or am I hiding from it? And my face is a giveaway. If I am hiding in my dark glasses or I'm hiding in my hair, and am I facing what just happened or welcoming that which I might consider unwelcome, being open-hearted? not trying to change things to fit my image, but allowing for flow in my relationship to it? Can I be attuned, trusting the wisdom of feeling and thereby feeling safe? And another thing that comes up is, can I remain aware of the danger of depending on recognition through my face? On knowing myself, I'm saying, oh, I know that. I know what's going on. Or being recognized by my face. There's a danger of living in that story of, Everything is known. What has really been valuable for me and what you've been saying is that initial first impression that you had, it appears to me is now a part of you, inextricably a part of you in your own being. After you shared your story, I remembered having walked into a home and spent some time with friends. And at the end of the evening, I was shown a picture of Yogi Ram's Rock Kumar for the first time. And I just immediately started weeping because the connection was so beautiful, so known, and it just reached in and became a part of me, that beautiful face. And so I think it's interesting not to underestimate the value of a strong personal connection in terms of receiving something for the first time in that way. When we had the yoga center in Mexico City, a friend came and she started to cry when she saw the pictures on the wall of Swami Prajnampat and Arnaud de Jardin. I don't know if they're familiar to you. She had dreamed of them. And she said, oh, that dream was a dream. It's not real. And when she came in and saw them, she says, those are the people of my dream. So it does exist. (laughs) We're lucky. It exists on so many levels. Jocelyn, a couple things. It seems to me like Holding on internally, attachment, it shows up in tension in the face. Everyone that we run into has some of that. Mm -hmm. Many of the people who will hear this talk may not have the experience of a teacher, the kind that you're speaking about, and those have some kind of radiance. But it seemed like for those who are on the path, even if they haven't had that experience, they may understand that when one is surrendered and realizes oneness with the creation, 
there's peace that manifests through the face. Maybe some people have seen pictures of Ramana Maharshi, who is beatific. How can a person be like this? You're struck by it. If you're in touch with something in yourself, because I don't think that you can see something in someone else unless you are in touch with it in yourself. Probably not. And one other thing, I have this image emblazoned in my mind of sitting with one teacher, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, who's Lee Lozovic's teacher. I was just really startled by his presence. He got up and started walking around and blessing people. But then he turned and looked at me. And it seemed very intentional, gazing and communicating something about the whole process through his face. So I'm resonating with the points that you're making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's timeless, cultureless. And it's really interesting that artifacts have been sculpted or carved in the traditions that communicate that. And that's what you're referring to. Yeah. yeah. You're having flashed on one of those statues. That, that universality of this experience, whereas our stories are so particular and so culturally contrived and we have a context. So Jocelyn, how has that affected you? Okay, so this is many years ago when you saw this image. Mm -hmm. And how has that affected you in your life? And how does it inform you today, your practice? It gives me what I was saying of that poem. It gives me a reference point to not get caught up in that day-to-day -day hassle of being victimized. Life is terrible. Life is a bitch. Because I live in a country where shit comes down every day. But at the same time, I live in a universe where this exists. And it's my, my support, my sanity. Mm -hmm. I had no religious training as a kid. I was never into this. It's a virgin territory where this started to happen. It is for real. And it's more real than all the transitory stuff that goes on. I find your face, Jocelyn, incredibly warm and inviting. If I'm giving a talk to a group of people, I'm always scanning the audience <laughs> to see what kind of response I'm getting. But you would be somebody who I would watch because your face is welcoming. Everybody doesn't have a welcoming general expression on their face, in my experience. And some of them are people that I totally love and adore and see regularly, but their face doesn't invite me. It's more deadpan or it's more waiting or it's more stress. My stories I'm making up about it, but trying to get a feel for the world around me, a lot of times it's pretty dead. Pretty dead out there. I feel the face is very often where one lives. One doesn't realize but you're alive in your face. The other question that I have is, can I face my shadow? 
Can I recognize my shadow face seen as in the mirror, inverted, where you see yourself crooked? And can I understand that my shadow is not only my own, but part of my culture's investment in the shadow corporation? The stories told create that shadow. And how do I get out of the shade into the light? Oh, it just seems to me like the mask covers up the darkness and the light. Isn't it important, though, to allow the face to reflect what's authentically happening at any time? That's the thing that is really difficult for me sometimes to not want to put some kind of a pasty face over what's really happening or how I really feel, because it's not always popular to look how you feel. It's not always inviting. It's not always encouraging to other people. But it takes me back to myself to allow my face to reflect what's happening in my being. Mm-hmm. Be honest with it. Ruthless self-honesty. Be honest with your face. It is what it is. It is what's happening. Yeah, there's not so much social support for that. It's how do you, <laughs> how do, you do? How are you doing today? <laughs> there's this clinical condition where a person cannot recognize anyone by their face. I don't know if you know the name. Let's see, it's called, I had to look it up myself, prosopognosia. So in actual life, people with that condition are in terrible fear because can you imagine you're encountering people, even your wife or your husband or your child, and you don't know who they are. So in actual situations, it's very frightening. But it strikes me just as a thought experiment, if you had this condition, you would be unable to create stories around the people you meet. You would meet them fresh for the first time every time. Mm-hmm. It would be a very potent condition if you had the intention and the context with which to mm-hmm. employ it. Or a very frightening one. Well, that's what it generally is for people. Yeah. It reminds me of that Sufi story of the sage who was asked how he got on the path. And he said, a dog taught him. And how was that? He said, well, I was watching a dog who was very thirsty. And every time he went to the stream to drink, he would shy away. He was afraid of what he saw there. And when I realized that he saw his own face, he said, I knew what my practice was. Face my face. Oh, everyone used to do this back in the 60s get really stoned and then go and look at your face in the mirror. It was totally frightening, but also in a way that you couldn't articulate, or at least I couldn't, it was useful to do Mm -hmm. that. What you were looking at was not really you. It was nobody that you really could put a finger on, Mm -hmm. even though you knew that it was reflection. It was a strange experience and one that I practice often. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. There are a whole series of things about the face. Socially, how many markings, how many tattoos, how many paints that are saying this person has achieved this or has gone through this and to be recognized as that. It's something that has been used way back when. The earrings, the tattoos, the facial markings and how many facial markings do we now use 
not in a spiritual sense, but just in an identity sense. Haircuts, trendy glasses, <laughs> tattoos again, but very personal ones instead of very spiritual symbolic ones. How much do we imitate honoring the face in terms of decorating it and making it be something that would be nice if it were, but probably usually isn't? How much can I depend on my face, on being accepted and on being in the right context and on being welcomed and properly decorated and properly <laughs> decked out? It's a whole game. No? There's a lot of information there in what we do with it to make ourselves accepted or make ourselves unacceptable. Unacceptable to our parents. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to be what that is. I want to be something else. We use our face tremendously to create an identity. And then one day you look at it and think, who the hell is that? <laughs> How did that get into my life? Wow, we use a face to create an identity, but we're not the face. Something can come through the face, mm -hmm. but we're not the face. That's not who we are. Mm -hmm. But that's how we use it. From everything from plastic surgery to, to looking down on you and looking up at you, or the way we use the face constantly is to create that identity. And yet the face can express a non-identity, a being. Well, it's got this double personality. <laughs> Freedom. Mm -hmm. Considering effacement, how do you erase your face? How do you not depend on your face? I've divided it into a spectrum. The erasing of the self is seen mostly in attitudes and actions and is of two natures at opposite ends of the spectrum. Voluntary, and coerced. Visualize the options in the example of bowing, of pranam, or of service. How do you erase your face when you're serving? And here's the two opposites of the spectrum. Conscious or habit. Surrender or submission. Humility or humiliation. Offering or an imposition. You're doing it from feeling or from emotion, from devotion or from fear, from dignity or from cowering, from freedom or from slavery, from bonding, being part of something bigger and dissolving in that, or from bondage, being part of something bigger, but you're obliterated. Which of the faces I have to lose so that the other face can appear? Just peel it layer by layer like an onion. Don't take a knife to it. Don't <laughs> kill that face. But I have here a quote from Rick Lewis, which I think he says it well. He says, there are two options once the truth starts becoming apparent. One is to self-destruct out of self-hatred in reaction to what is now seen. And the other is to pierce the truth as it is, even though it is distasteful, frightening, or threatening. 
if one manages to stomach the terror of the second option, there will be a grand shakeup of the whole ego complex. It will come apart and some kind of reordering will have to occur. That's stories. Through the acceptance of what is, the old boundaries are weakened and even totally obliterated, no longer able to wall out what ego was disassociating itself from. When all that we were previously denying is let in, we stop protecting who and what we think we are, and a mysteriousness might enter the picture. We may start to find that we do not know exactly who we are anymore, or even in moments be unable to find anything that we are not. And we may begin to think that we are going mad or losing touch with reality. We are, in fact, just beginning to open to reality with a capital, if this happens. If the knack of this openness to all of what is takes hold, and one dives more deeply in, one comes to experience the original face. The face is without character, without persona, and at this point, one has truly lost face. Losing face is the only possibility for a transformed life. The beginning of transformation is to lose the personal and merge with the universal, with everything. I would like to close with something that was another gift, which is a poem, which is called The Faces of Braga by David White. In monastery darkness, by the light of one flashlight, the old shrine room waits in silence. While above the door we see the terrible figure, fierce eyes demanding, will you step through? And this sounds like practice to me. And the old monk leads us, bent back, nudging blackness, prayer beads in the hand that beckons. We light the butter lamps and bow, eyes blinking in the pungent smoke, Look up without a word. See faces in meditation, a hundred faces carved above, eyelines wrinkled in the handheld light. Such love in solid wood. Taken from the hillsides and carved in silence, they have the vibrant stillness of those who made them. Engulfed by the past, they have been neglected but through smoke and darkness, they are like the flowers we have seen growing through the dust of eroded slopes. Their slowly opening faces turn toward the mountain. Carved in devotion, their eyes have softened with age, and their mouths curve through delight of the carver's hand. If only our own faces would allow the invisible carver's hand to bring the deep grain of love the surface. If only we knew, as the carver knew, how the flaws in the wood led his searching chisel to the very core. We would smile too, and not need faces immobilized by fear and the weight of things undone. When we fight with our failing, we ignore the entrance to the shrine itself and wrestle with the guardian fierce figure on the side of good. And as we fight, our eyes are hooded with grief and our mouths are dry with pain. If only we could give ourselves to the blows of the carver's hands, the lines in our faces would be the trace lines of rivers feeding the sea, where voices meet. 
praising the features of the mountain and the cloud and the sky. Our faces would fall away until we, growing younger toward death every day, would gather all our flaws in celebration to merge with them perfectly, impossibly, wedded to our essence, full of silence from the carver's hand. Let the carver carve the face. How to work with that is what's occurring to me as you're reading this. And one thing is that when situations come up where I could lose face, to just allow that to happen rather than protecting myself, putting up a mask. You know, it's not so bad. It's not so terrible if you lose face. No, there's a freedom. Yeah, but the natural reaction, natural, so to speak, is to resist Mm -hmm. mightily. But for myself, if I can catch myself and then just, okay. I mean, I just made a mistake at work the other day. I overlooked something. There were so many things to do. I can't even say. And I missed this thing and sent out an email to a bunch of people. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt terrible about it later because it made some people feel as though they didn't do something that they should have done, but they actually did do it. Mm -hmm. And my reaction was to apologize and that was right to do, but... You don't need to fix it? Yeah. (laughs) Allow grief to be grief and allow joy to be joy and allow the waves that are passing through the ocean to be there. It doesn't affect the ocean. My face was not my face when I was born. It was the face of heredity and whatever happened with it. And it's not mine as it ages. And I never designed it. Me was something that doesn't exist. It's an invention anyway. So surrender and be in the carver's hands gosh but if there's a blemish somewhere (laughs) cover that up so fast (laughs) uh red hawk poem little short one called porna's teaching train yourself become a servant of life do whatever's needed your life is not your business no thought No reflection, no analysis, no cultivation, no intention. Let it settle itself. 